The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Uh, the scripture reading for today in your bulletin says that I'm going to be covering Luke 22, verses 24 to 34. But I'm actually going to only go up to verse 30 today in this message. And then I'm going to include verses 31 to 34 in the next passage that I, I was, I'm going to be preaching next week, which will go up to verse 38 okay, of Luke 22. So uh, the title of the message is, Who is the Greatest? And I, I, I've labeled it part two because I've actually preached a message already entitled, Who is the Greatest?, back in Luke chapter 9. And so what we're going to see is that this is an old argument that gets stirred up again by the disciples. Uh, it seems to be a running argument that they have throughout their time with Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles with you, we'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read from verse 24 and go up through verse 30 today. Luke 22, verse 24 to 30. And it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for our eyes to be open to understand the mystery of your kingdom, of what it means that the least will be the greatest, and the greatest will be least. Give us a heart of faith to embrace this teaching so that everything that we do, all of our acts of devotion, would ultimately express faith in a reward that can only come from you and not from man. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. On September 11th, 2009, Michael Jordan was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. It was inevitable, right? And the speech that he gave for his enshrinement uh, has become infamous. The two words that are most often used by sports writers to describe his speech that day are petty and bullying. The speech lasted 23 minutes, and I, I sort of wonder if he timed it that way, you know? Um, but it was very short on thankfulness and humility and long on settling scores and taking shots at just about everyone that he encountered in his basketball career. I mean, he left nobody out. He, from his high school coach to his college coach to his college roommate to other NBA players and coaches that he played with during his career, uh, just about everyone came under Jordan's fire. Uh, Dean Smith, Doug Collins, you know, Jeff Van Gundy, Isaiah Thomas, uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. No one was spared 
uh, from Jordan that day. And it's funny because he sort of framed it as my hyper-competitiveness. But what he really seemed to be saying to every single one of these people is, how dare you question or challenge my greatness? Uh, His only acknowledgement to his children during that entire 23-minute speech was to look at them and say as they squirmed in their seats, uh, I wouldn't want to be you guys. <laughs> That's all he said to his kids, is I sure wouldn't want to be you guys, implying the pressure that they have to live under his enormous shadow. You know, So you have such a great father, I would hate to be you guys and have to live your life. Speaking about the former Bulls general manager, Jerry Krause, uh, who didn't even attend the ceremony, Jordan said, Jerry's not here. I don't even know who would invite him. I didn't. He said organizations win championships. I said, I didn't see organizations playing with the flu in Utah. I didn't see it playing with a bad ankle. (laughs) You get a sense of how petty he was, right? His ability on the basketball court made Jordan a legend, a giant. But his words diminished him revealing what a small man he really was on the inside, what an insecure guy he really is. I think in a similar way, the disciples took one of the greatest moments in history and blemished it when they opened their mouths. And they turned this last supper that Jesus wanted to share as a love meal with his disciples into an argument about who was the greatest among them. Earlier that evening, Jesus had just done the unthinkable, wrapping a towel around his waist and washing his disciples' feet, a job that was reserved for the lowest of servants in a household because it was considered so unpleasant. And after that, he gathered them around a table for a final meal, revealing how his body was soon to be broken and his blood poured out on their behalf. And as unbelievable as it was in that holy moment, the disciples begin arguing among themselves about which one of them is the greatest. Now, there's really no way to definitively know what prompted the dinner to end up in this argument. But I think there's some possibilities, right? Um, It's possible that for three years after following Jesus, As they now sit around this table, the disciples realize that everything is coming to a final climax. After a long journey, they had finally reached Jerusalem. And what an entrance Jesus made with people waving palm branches and saying Hosanna and singing the praises of Jesus and even calling him king. And I think the disciples began to sense that this is the end. Jesus is about to take the throne of David. He is about to claim his kingdom, and I think there was a sense of opportunity in the hearts of the disciples that said, I want in on that action, and I want to be sure I have my rightful seat next to him when he takes his throne. I think, though, perhaps an even more likely source of the argument was the fact that just Jesus had just revealed that one of them was going to betray him. In Luke 22, verse 21 to 23, it says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man 
by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. I find it so interesting that they didn't all simultaneously point to Judas and go, it's him, isn't it, right? Judas seems to have sort of glided under the radar so that no one suspected him, put on a good enough act that he blended right in with the other disciples. And so instead they start turning on each other, trying to figure out who the betrayer is going to be. And you can almost imagine what that conversation would have been like. You can picture Simon the Zealot turning on Matthew, the tax collector, and saying, I bet it's you, Matthew. I have no idea what Jesus was thinking, picking a tax collector to be among us. I bet it's you. I wonder if John gave Peter the stink eye and said, it's you, Peter, isn't it? Because you're so flaky. You're so hot-tempered. I don't, who knows what you're capable of? And so it's not hard to imagine that an argument about who was the worst evolved into who was the greatest. You can almost picture Peter defending himself. How dare you accuse me of being the one that's going to betray Jesus? Who walked on water with Jesus when all you cowards were clinging with white knuckles to that boat? And then Andrew, his brother, could have replied to Peter, Oh yeah, Peter, who discovered Jesus first? If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't even be here with with us. I'm the one that told you he was the Messiah. And you can picture this going on and on as each person tries to make a case for why they're the greatest disciple. In fact, as I said, there's at least two other times in the Gospels recorded where they have the same argument. It seems to be their favorite pastime. Whenever they're walking, so you know I'm the greatest, right? Or you know Jesus loved me the most. And they get into this argument over and over again. Now, before I go on, I just want to say this. Can you relate with what's happening here? Can you? Can you relate with this argument that the disciples have? Because I think one of the biggest dangers as we look at the disciples' behavior is that it appears to us so ridiculous, so utterly self-centered that it feels irrelevant to us. Like, those guys were just absurd. Like, I, I don't behave like that. I don't sit there boasting about myself. I, I pray to God none of you has an ICC leaderboard at home <laughs> where you rank everyone, and then you keep, you know, sort of seeing where you fit in the pecking order. I mean, that's so crass. That's so obscene that I don't think any of you would be guilty of something like that. But... If you cannot identify with this fundamental human drive to exalt ourselves at the cost of others, then this passage will have no meaning to you this morning. But we all have to acknowledge that that spirit is within us, that we want people to acknowledge what we've done. We want to climb in status even at the cost of others. We want to boast. We want to show off. It says in verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. What Jesus is saying is this. The way you guys are arguing right now, this is exactly how the whole world works. It operates on this principle of selfish motives. Even when you help somebody else out, You're ultimately only doing it to elevate yourself. 
That term benefactor that Jesus uses, that was a title of honor that was used in his day to recognize those with particular status or wealth who had the power to do good for others. And so in public, they were often called benefactors. It was a title of honor. And so the message was this. You help someone out because you know in turn those people you helped will recognize you publicly and say, that's my benefactor. That's the guy that did this for me. And so you do it so that you could get praise and recognition. The praise and recognition you think you deserve. And so what Jesus is saying, the real reason why people do anything in this life is not out of a genuine selflessness, a kindness, or a generosity, but it's really personal gain, anticipating what you're going to get in return in terms of your recognition, your status, the thanks that people are going to heap on you. And the message is, without that motivation, what would drive anyone to do anything good for other people? Do you recognize the spirit in your own heart? Have you ever done anything for someone and they never even thanked you or recognized you? And did you feel that raging monster inside screaming for that recognition? I know I felt that plenty of times when I feel like I've made a big sacrifice to my family, went out of the way to make an exceptional meal, and go, thanks, Dad. <laughs> not even thanks, Dad. It's just, all right, I'm going to, you know. Or even some of the kids go, I'm not hungry. I'm not going to eat. You will eat this meal, <laughs> and you will be thankful, you know. When I help a church member out, and no thanks, no recognition, no, you're a great pastor, you know. It's just, well, isn't this your job? <laughs> I mean, you don't realize that spirit is in you until you make the sacrifice and you feel that no one gives you credit. No one acknowledges what you've done for them. But Jesus points out that his kingdom is built on an entirely different set of values. What he says is the higher you climb in rank in my kingdom, the more you become a servant to others. Verses 26 to 27, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You have to remember that Jesus is giving the speech just maybe an hour or so after he washed the disciples' feet. The humility that Jesus taught his disciples isn't about denying the abilities and giftings God has given you. There is this sort of false modesty that makes you go around acting like you're nobody. And that's not the humility that Jesus talks about. The humility that Jesus says is essentially this. It's putting others before yourself. Putting their needs even before your own. That is at the heart, the essence of biblical servanthood. John Orberg says this, Pride destroys our capacity to love. Pride moves us to exclude instead of to embrace. Pride moves us to bow down before a mirror rather than before God. Pride moves us to judge rather than to serve. Pride means not only that we want to be smart and wealthy, but also that we will not be satisfied until we are smarter and wealthier than those around us. Pride is essentially comparative in nature. 
Humility is not about convincing ourselves or others that we are unattractive or incompetent. It is not about beating ourselves up or trying to make ourselves nothing. Humility has to do with submitted willingness. It involves a healthy self-forgetfulness. We will know we have begun to make progress in humility when we find that we get so enabled by the Holy Spirit to live in the moment that we cease to be preoccupied with ourselves, one way or the other. When we are with others, we are truly with them, not wondering how they can be of benefit to us. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Is The way true humility and servanthood is demonstrated in the kingdom is not going, oh, Peter, you're better than me, you know, like uh, you did a better job than I did preaching that day in synagogue or whatever. And it was getting down on his knees, taking off his clothes, wrapping a towel around his waist, and washing the disciples' feet, a task that in truth none of them would have done for each other because it was too lowly, it was too dirty to do. If somebody comes to me and says that they appreciated a sermon that I preach, humility doesn't mean that I reply by saying, no, nah, that message was no good. Like, uh, if you got anything out of it, it was a miracle because there's so many preachers better than me. You know? like, and, and the truth is, when I first started preaching, that's how I used to reply because I was so awkward about it. You know? I felt so uncomfortable that someone was acknowledging my sermon. What true humility would be in that setting is for me to be able to say that the reason why I preach is not to receive your praise, but to serve you so that you can spiritually grow. That is the true humility of a preacher. And what that would mean is that if I am truly a servant to that cause, then at times, if I'm going to be a faithful messenger to God, I have to say some things to you that are going to be unpopular, that risk misunderstanding, that may cause you not to like me out of my desire to serve you, that you would grow. It means that as a pastor, I would be willing to make other sacrifices that don't receive nearly the glory as preaching does. Because let's be honest here, this is my one hour in the limelight as a pastor, you know? This is the one moment of glory where I can shine and show off and be acknowledged. But what about the rest of the week? The stuff that nobody is going to see. Do I have that same servant's heart as I do when I prep a message so that you think I'm a good speaker? You see, this is what Jesus is driving at when he talks about the least being the greatest and the greatest least. I put you before me, and I serve you rather than even my own needs. I want to say something here. Some of you, as you're hearing everything that I'm saying up to now, may be thinking this in your heads. Sounds so great, but it's ridiculously impossible. (laughs) How can anybody do this? How can anyone possibly eliminate any sense of self-interest? in serving others? How can anyone be that selfless in giving toward other people that you think nothing of your own gain? And what I actually want to say is this. When you look closely at the Bible, 
I don't think it takes self-interest out of the equation. I don't. In fact, Jesus appeals to our own self-interest, but the reward we seek always comes from God, not people. Jesus says, you want a reward, don't you, right? We all crave acknowledgement, don't you? That's okay, but seek that acknowledgement from me, not the people you serve. Seek the reward from me, not the status or the titles that you're going to get or the praise that's going to be heaped on you. Because Jesus says, the day is coming when I will come and give my rewards to everyone who has served me faithfully. In verses 28 to 30, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the promise he gives his disciples. As you remain faithful to me, one day you will reign with me in glory. You will rule with me. The recognition that we work for is not one that we receive in this life from others, but one we patiently wait to receive from God in the life to come. That is our reward. That is what we live for. Not the praise of men, but the praise of God. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, you may be, you, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is what Jesus is asking. In every act of devotion that you do, in your giving, in your singing and worship, in your praying and your fasting, who is your audience? Who is your audience? Is it really God or is it others? Because what Jesus is saying is there is a false religion that mimics the real thing and it's everywhere. It was everywhere in Jesus' day, and it looked so good. People giving to the church, people praying, people helping other people, and it all looks like it ought to be pleasing to God, but what Jesus says is it never even touches God. It's all about what you're gaining in this life, the recognition that you receive from others, and God says, I'm not even a part of this story. And so he says, you've received your reward in full. Just do that for each other. That's fine because even the world does this. You see, what we're talking about here is not just trying to improve our attitude in serving. I think this is fundamentally about the gospel, what we truly believe. Is there a God in heaven? And is there an eternal life? And is that what motivates everything that we do in the Christian life? Or is it just about us fighting for our little piece of the pie in this life and what we can gain in recognition from others? That was the religion of the Pharisees. 
When Jesus looked at them going, everyone honors them. Everyone is so impressed by them. Everyone says, oh, wow, look at how they fast and look at how they pray. Look at how loudly they pray. And Jesus says, it has nothing to do with me. All they are doing it is for the eyes of men. I don't even factor into their devotion. And so they have received the reward in full in this life. But those who are truly a part of my kingdom are doing things in secret so that the God who sees in secret will one day reward them. I want to ask you, what are the motives, the hidden motives, that drive the things that you do? Who is the audience that motivates your acts of devotion? Because it's a very frightening thing that you can behaviorally do everything that God asks you to do and yet do it for all the wrong reasons, for an entirely wrong audience. One of the ways that we can grow in knowing that we're doing things for the Lord is a discipline that God offers to us of secrecy, of doing things in secret to train our hearts how to do things for the right motives. Dallas Willard writes this, The discipline of secrecy will help us break the grip of human opinion over our souls and our actions. A discipline is an activity in our power that we do to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. Jesus is here leading us into the discipline of secrecy. We from time to time practice doing things approved of in our religious circles, giving, praying, fasting, attending services of the church, and so on, but in such a way that no one knows. Thus, our motivation and reward for doing these things cannot come from human beings. We are liberated from slavery to eyes. And then it does not matter whether people know or not. One of the things that Willard is saying is you can't do everything in secret. And yet the more public your acts of devotion are, the more that temptation is to do it for that praise and recognition. But when you discipline your heart through this act of secrecy, you can actually train yourself to do it for the audience of God alone so that even the stuff that becomes visible to others is done with the right heart because all you care about is the audience of God. And so what I would invite each one of you to do is to figure out ways to serve and to worship and to give that nobody else is ever going to know about. Make a generous donation anonymously. Never letting others know what you did. Secretly commit yourself to praying for somebody who's in trouble. But don't tell them, hey, I'm praying for you. But still pray. Pray sacrificially. Volunteer at a homeless shelter or a nursing home. And don't post it on Instagram every week you go. Do an act of kindness to someone who cannot repay you or never realize that you are the one that did it for them. And let me say this. When you do this stuff, you will be miserable. I guarantee you it. Okay? You will be miserable. 
There'll be something in you that screams. This stinks. It's no fun. But that's part of the process of this discipline of secrecy is you want to uncage that monster and let it shout for recognition. And it gives you an opportunity to explore your motives and to repent and give that to God in secret for the God who sees in secret. Richard Foster says this, Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. I love that. The flesh whines against service, but at least someone thanked me, you know? But it screams against hidden service. How dare nobody acknowledge the sacrifice that I made? You see, when you think like that, what is so frightening about that mentality is not just about the issue of gratitude, but about faith. It really begins to call into question whether you even believe there's a God in heaven who is seeing any of what you're doing and who has promised you a reward. The more that we do that bears it all and seeks for the recognition of others, the more we put in jeopardy the reality of our faith that says, I'm living for another kingdom. I'm living for another world. I'm living for another audience, and it's not you. It's for a God that I've given my life to, who has given his life to me and committed himself to me. That is the essence of Christianity to live for the audience of one, regardless of what people may ever acknowledge in this lifetime. Let's pray.